Lord, we bless your name. We exalt you. You are our King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. We worship you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's make our confession. This is our year of jubilee. We expect manifestations of the Holy Ghost and power. We believe for financial miracles and miracles of healing. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In my experience and the things that have taken place in my body over the last 10 years, well, more than 10 years, don't know exactly how long, but more than 10 years, certainly, there's some things that I have learned that, um, that have much greater value than I ever assigned to them. One of the things that I've, I've learned during this experience, adversity, test, trial, affliction, whatever you want to call it, is to guard my hope. Hope is a subject that I've never really given a whole lot of time or attention to. Mostly because it was not in what I consider to be the most important things. But if you think about it, every, every attack of the enemy, every adversity, every hard place, every one of those things is designed to take away your hope. Proverbs says that hope Deferred, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. The Bible is full of examples where the devil brought his work against the people of God. And in every case, it's designed to make you release your hold on your hope. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hope doesn't have any substance. Faith is the thing that gives hope substance. The reason that this is so important is because things without substance cannot come to pass. Things without substance provide no help or aid or victory. But faith, believing in the heart and saying with the mouth, gives substance to hope and brings it into a reality. 
I want to remind you of some things in the Bible where it tells us about the attack on our hope. In Numbers chapter 21, verse 4, it talks about the actions of the children of Israel. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. The hope of the people, or the soul of the people, was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loathes this, this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. The story goes on to talk about how he put a brass serpent on a pole. And everybody that beheld the brass serpent was healed and delivered from this affliction. But notice it says the reason for these things was because the people were discouraged because of the way. The way or the experience that we have is so often not the way that we expect it to be. One of the things I've learned, I learned early on in my walk with God, is that I will not say that I won't do something. Because just as soon as you say that you won't do something, you're going to wind up having to do it. It is as if the things that we resist and the actions that we refuse to take become something that is um, a stumbling block or a hindrance to the most important thing about our walk with God, and that is to be submitted to his will. Anytime we say we won't do something, that sets us at odds with the will of God in most cases. You remember in Mark chapter 4, where Jesus is talking about the sower sowing the word, He identifies five things that the enemy will do and bring against us in his attempt to destroy us. With the stony ground, he said that affliction and persecution causes them to turn loose of their faith in God. Affliction and persecution, affliction just means trouble. Persecution is people coming against you. The Bible tells us in David's experience in 2 Samuel chapter 30 or 1 Samuel chapter 30 
I'm going to start reading in verse 1. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire. This is before David becomes king. And taking the women captives that were therein, they slew not any either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and the wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captive, Minoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. Notice how people respond to trouble. They come back to their headquarters city where David operates his guerrilla warfare tactics against the Philistines and the Amorites. And when they return, things couldn't look any worse. Their dwelling places were destroyed and burned. I guess the only good news there was for them to see is there, was, there were not dead bodies left laying in the streets. And it says that the soul of the people was, was grieved. And the people decided that the way out of this the answer to their problems was to stone David. Folks, experiences that we have are used by the devil to discourage us in such a manner that we turn loose of the things that we believe that we have believed God for. But David recognized that his response to this situation was critical. He encouraged himself in the Lord. He set himself to seek the Lord and he prayed, what should we do about this? Should we pursue these people that have taken the wives and captive, wives, captives and daughters? the wives and their daughters and sons. And the Lord told him to go pursue the enemy. And they wound up taking their families back to them, restoring them, delivering them from the enemy's captivity. But another important thing about this story 
Is it said they grieved, they wept until they had no more strength to weep? They put themselves in a position, and I'm not criticizing them for doing it. I'm not sure I would have handled it any better than they did. But they put themselves in a position where their emotions were the guiding force of their reaction to this terrible tragedy. Turns out God turned this around for good. They recaptured everything that was stolen from them and they spoiled the enemy and took a great spoil from these people that had taken captives, their families. There's another story that the Bible relates to us concerning Abraham in Romans chapter 4 and verse 17. It's talking about God's plan for bringing a child to Abraham and Sarah. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Abraham had no hope. He had no circumstances of his life or evidence in his body that he or Sarah could have children at their advanced age. Abraham was about 100 when Isaac was born and Sarah was 90. And the Bible tells us that their bodies had ceased to function in a sexually reproductive manner. So Abraham, who God had promised a son and a family 25 years earlier when he first appeared to him, Abraham had no hope there was nothing in the physical realm. There was no physical reality that he could use as an encouragement to the possibility of him having children with Sarah. What hope did Abraham believe in? He had no physical hope. No physical reality or evidence. What did he have? Folks, the only thing he had was a promise from God. The Bible tells us of others who are in the same type of situation. Second Chronicles chapter 20. It came to pass after all this also 
that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them others beside the Amorites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold, they be in some place which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord, even out of all the cities of Judah that came to seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, art thou not God in heaven? And rulest thou not over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thy hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Art thou not God, our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gave it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil comes upon us, as with the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house, and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. And now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldst not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. We all come to places in our lives where we don't know what to do. We all come to places in our lives where the enemy brings an attack against us to such a degree that we don't know what to do. Folks, there's nothing wrong with not knowing what to do in situations in our lives. But the real shame is when we don't recognize the need to find hope in God's word so that we can trust him. The Bible tells us of Hezekiah, who is the king of Israel. Hezekiah was dealt a sickness. The Bible doesn't tell us what it is, but it was life-threatening. And Isaiah is commanded to go to Hezekiah and to tell him the word of the Lord in his case, and that message he was supposed to tell was that Hezekiah was going to die. Set your house in order, Isaiah said. For the Lord says that you're going to die. Now Isaiah leaves the presence of the king and Hezekiah turns his face to the wall. That phrase just simply means he shut himself up with God. And he prayed. And he reminded the Lord of the things that he had done to honor him. 
He reminded him of the things that he had done in putting God's word first place. And Hezekiah was the one that reinstated the Passover, the keeping of the Passover. And it brought healing to the people. And there were other things he did. He tore down the, the idols and the places of worship for idols and other gods. He's done some stand-up things as the king of Israel to emphasize the worship of God that God had commanded many hundreds of years before. And before Isaiah can get out of the courtyard, God speaks to him again and says, go back and tell Hezekiah that he won't die and that I'll give him 15 more years of life. I mean, some people look at that and say that God changed, but he didn't. Isaiah's first message to him that he was going to die was the result of the road that he was on. In other words, he's saying, Hezekiah, you're going to die if you don't make changes. And he made those changes. Hezekiah had hope in the character and the nature of God. There are other times that the Bible relates to us the difficulty that somebody's experiencing. For example, the book of Job is full of the word hope. Job winds up having to defend himself against his friends. I'm not sure how friends, how much of real friends they were. But he talked about with these three friends that came to him. They accused him saying that something must be wrong in his life for this trouble that Satan brought against him. They were looking for a source of the trouble that he was in. And they, without any knowledge of Satan or his tactics, they thought God was behind the trouble that came upon him. Folks, there are a lot of things about the book of Job that we don't understand. And a lot of people try to interpret the book of Job based on the covenants that God has made with his people. But we really don't know what time period Job lived in. We know that he wasn't a descendant of Abraham. So if he wasn't a descendant of Abraham, what law of God is he living under? 
He can't be operating according to the law of Moses because he lived before Moses many hundreds of years before. But nevertheless, the book of Job talks a lot about hope. And Job wound up having hope in God. That hope in God wasn't really translated later in his life to real faith. Because he didn't know who his enemy was. See, folks, if you think that God is the one behind the trouble that's going on in your life, it's impossible for you to trust him and believe for a change. It's impossible. Because faith begins where the will of God is known. So if you don't know who's behind the trouble that's coming after you and is overtaking you, you certainly can't trust God to be your deliverer. David talked a lot about hope. In the Psalms, there are a lot of scriptures that refer to David's hope in God, knowing full well that the trouble that's come against him is coming from King Saul as he's being influenced by the devil to wage war against David. As I said, the book of Proverbs tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred, which is just talking about time. Hope deferred is used of the devil, or he'll at least attempt to use it, to get you to the place where you question whether God's promises towards you are true. And the devil will tell you all kinds of stuff and make a case against you in an attempt <clears throat> to see to it that you don't trust God or rely on his promises. And the longer it goes, the more he'll use this area of attack. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, we which have believed do enter into rest. We which have believed have entered into rest. I love this prayer of Jehoshaphat because he doesn't mix any words. He simply states the truth and the reality. They have a covenant promise. The children of Israel had a covenant promise from God. And that covenant promise was quite specific in relating to the temple 
God had said when Solomon dedicated the temple that if Israel found themselves in trouble, if they came to the place where he, the name of God was placed, then God would deliver them out of their trouble. But this situation has gone beyond just theory. They need to have this promise transferred to them, transfigured to them in such a way that it protects the people. So Jehoshaphat, wasn't, he wasn't bashful about it. He said, Lord, you, had this, you made this promise to us, and now we're putting the promise to the test. You said you would deliver us. Now what? We don't know what to do. We're not strong enough to defeat these armies. But our eyes are on you. Folks, when your hope deferred, which has the potential to make the heart sick, to grieve the spirit, the real you, It doesn't matter how big the challenge is. It doesn't matter how big the trouble is. God said that he would deliver us. But the devil sure does use time against us. And his argument's always the same. It's something along the lines of it, since it hasn't happened yet, what makes you think it's going to happen at all? There's a verse of scripture in the Old Testament that I found, and it got away from me. I'm still looking to find it again. But it basically said this. Lord, if it hadn't been for your word, we would have had no hope. Except for thy word, we would have been without hope. What do we put our hope in? What's your hope in? My hope is in the promise of God. That's all I've got. There's a leper that came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. And he said, Lord, you can heal me if you will. He believed in the power of God. He believed in the power of God that was upon Jesus. But he didn't know that it was for him. Lord, you can heal me if you will. Jesus was moved with compassion, the Bible says, and instantly touched him and said, I will be thou clean. 
Instantly his leprosy was gone. Now for God to operate and respond to this man's lack of understanding is really pretty remarkable. And it showed the instant results, the instantaneous healing results for this man. And I think the biggest reason that it happened instantly was to show God's healing mercy and his attitude toward ministering to his people by the mercies of God. There's another story in John chapter 4. It tells us that Jesus was in the region of Galilee, Cana of Galilee. And he had very soon before performed a miracle at the wedding where the water was turned into wine. John tells us that that was the first miracle that Jesus performed. But the second miracle that he performed was when a nobleman came to him on behalf of healing for his son. He came to Jesus and said, Sir, come down to my house, lest my son die. And Jesus said something really unusual, especially at this point in time in his ministry. And remember, John said this was the second miracle that he performed. So this is before what he did in Capernaum. This is before the things that were related when he went to Nazareth, which was his hometown that he grew up in. So before any of these things, there was a nobleman that came to Jesus. Since Jesus had performed only one miracle up to that point in time, And that one miracle was turning the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. This nobleman came to Jesus with an understanding that Jesus had authority over sickness and disease. And so he petitions him to come to his house. But Jesus responds and he says, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the nobleman asked him again, come down to my house. Jesus said, go thy way, thy son liveth. And the nobleman believed Jesus and went on his way back to his house. The servants from his house met him on the way back. And told him his son was alive. And he asked what time he began to amend. 
And they said, yesterday at a at certain hour. And he knew that it was when Jesus had said, go your way, your son liveth. Now, interestingly enough, at least I find it interesting, the first healing miracle that Jesus performed, if it indeed was the second miracle, as John said that it was, the first healing miracle that Jesus performed was not instant. It was not an instantaneous result. I'm not sure how far the man had to travel. The nobleman had to travel. But it took him until overnight to get back to where his servants could catch up to him. Now Abraham, as it tells us, who against hope believed in hope. When the time was come, for God's fulfillment of the promise. He had to appear to and visit Abraham. And get him from the place of unbelief. That he had developed. And over into faith. If you read the story. In Genesis chapter 17. It identifies that God did something very specific for Abraham. He renewed his hope. Now, how did he renew his hope? He talked to him about the promise. What we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 30, where David, when the people were wanting to stone him because of the grief that they were experiencing, David encouraged himself in the Lord. He reminded himself of the promise that God had made to him. He reminded himself of the plan that God was in the process of carrying out, which was to make him king of Israel in Saul's place. So when God deals with Abraham... He doesn't make a new promise. He doesn't make a second promise to overcome the one that he already made him. He simply appeared to Abraham and talked to him about the promise, the, the first and the original promise. He talked to Abraham And he identifies that there's nothing that's too hard for the Lord. And he renews his hope. Nothing else really changed about Abraham other than the change that God makes of his name. And that I don't mean to minimize that. That was of utmost importance. Because man has been given authority on the earth. Man was created for the purpose of having authority on the earth. And God can't just come down and do something to Abraham or for Abraham. Independent of his 
the authority that he has over his own life. So he talks to Abraham about the promise. And he gives him a time limit. He tells him about this time next year. You'll have a child born unto you of your wife Sarah. Nothing happens till Abraham changes his, the things that he said. And God changed his name to specifically relate to the promise of his seed being like the stars of the sky, innumerable, unable to count. There are times where we need to renew our hope. One of the great tactics of the devil has to do with the principles and the operation of faith. Now, folks, think about this for a second. The Bible says unequivocally that man was created for the purpose of having dominion in the earth. Genesis 126 tells us God's plan. Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the work of our hands. So his name change reflects this. Every time Abraham is called or uses his own name, he calls himself the father of many nations. And I'm certain that Abraham has to tell others that knew him by the name Abram that his name's not Abram anymore. His name is Abraham. So here's a hundred-year-old man who hasn't had a son by Sarah calling himself the father of many nations and requiring that other people use his new name. I'm not sure how that would have been met concerning the people that he told that to. But it says to me that Abraham made a decision to abide by the things that God told him and not just the things as they used to be. So God renews his hope and he renews Sarah's hope too. just simply by relating to him, God relating to Abraham and Sarah, his plan and purpose for them.
Folks, there's nothing that's too hard for the Lord. And that seems to be the important information that God relates to us when we are in those times of difficulty. And the longer it goes, the more room that the devil thinks he has to make you lose, to make you release your hold on his word to make you give up your faith instead of standing strong. Now, there's one other thing I want to tell you about concerning this guarding your hope. One of the most overlooked things it seems to me is the hopelessness of eternity without God. The Bible tells us that people will experience torment, eternal torment. Now this eternal torment can't be just physical trouble, the burning of the, in the lake of fire. Because man does not have a body at that point in time. So it's spiritual trouble, spiritual torment that takes place. And a part of that torment is the hopelessness that those that die without God experience even Jesus had hope in hell he knew and trusted in the promise of God all during the three days that he spent in the belly of the earth the torment and the penalty for sin, man's original sin through Adam, and then man's individual sin. Jesus cried out just as he gave up the ghost just before he died on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, we know the answer to that, and I'm sure Jesus did too. But that was the point that Jesus died spiritually. And he was no longer in the hand of God, he was no longer protected by the covenant of Abraham. He was truly at the mercy of the devil. Completely at the mercy of the devil.
The book of Psalms tells us, Psalm 82, tells us that Jesus was alone. It tells us that he experienced torments like the waves of the sea crashing on the shore. So those waves of punishment for sin crashed upon him wave after wave after wave. Now the Bible tells us that those that die without God experience torment, not torment of the flesh, but torment of the spirit. And one of the greatest tormenting forces that they will experience is the lack of hope for the rest of eternity. Folks, no matter how bad we've messed up, no matter how much sin we've committed, no matter how severe the errors and the sins and the mistakes that we make, man is never truly without hope in God. That hope in God may be less than we would hope for it to be. But in hell there is no hope. Only the quiet and dark silence as the individual suffers eternal damnation and torment. Of all the things that the Bible tells us about hell and that place of punishment, I don't think there'll be anything greater that makes up that torment than the lack of hope. I've spent some time meditating on this. And the place that I've come to about the eternal hopelessness and torment of hell. The place that I've come to is almost a scary thing. By that, I mean that as I, the more I meditate on it, the more real it becomes. Not real for me, 
because I belong to Jesus. But there is a real, true penalty that man will have to pay if he rejects the payment that Jesus has made for him. And that hopelessness is not just solitude. But it's the realization that there will never be a better day. There's the realization that there will never be less torment. The realization that there'll never be any change. That the eternity of payment that is required by those that reject Jesus and his sacrifice Because that's why we have to reach the lost. To avoid that hopelessness. That eternal debt. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. Folks don't ever turn loose of God's word. No matter how long it's been, no matter how long or how soon we might have expected his word to come to pass. Guard your hope. Don't let the devil take it from you. Don't let him tell you that it's expired. My hope is in God. My hope will always be in God. I'd like to say and I would like to hope in the changes that I'm believing for to be done and over with soon. But if not, I have committed to, the, to my Lord and Master that I will never release my hold on his word. I will never relinquish my belief or my confession in God and his word.
I have had through this duration. I've had God renew my hope in a couple of different ways. And oh, the blessedness and the joy that has come on those occasions where he renewed my hope. He didn't tell me something new. He just reminded me of something true. And in so doing, he's brought freedom in what looks like bondage. He's brought hope when things have taken so long. I wish I could tell you that the Lord has shown me what would happen and when it would happen. He has shown me what will happen, but I don't have any clue on when. And as I understand it, my job is simple. My job is simply to believe that I receive. Guard your hope, folks. Guard that which God has told us. And never let it go. No matter what, no matter what happens, no matter how long it takes, no matter how discouraged we may get, God's word is true. And God is faithful. One of the last things the Lord has said to me about this thing is that he is faithful. The creator of the universe is having to remind me that he is faithful. Of all the things that he is upholding and bringing to pass the creator of the universe told me that he's faithful. I couldn't be happier than what he, than I am with what he said and what he told me. But the fact that he had to tell me it boggles my mind. But folks, he is faithful. He watches over his word to perform it.
And like Smith Wigglesworth used to say, God will pass over a million people to get to one person standing in faith. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, our hope is in you. You are our only hope. And Lord, we're facing the last days, the end of time. Just as you showed us, just as you spoke to us. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you that because we've set our love upon you, you deliver us. Because we've known your name, you set us on high. When we call upon you, you answer us. You are with us in trouble. You honor us. And you rescue us. With long life, you satisfy us and show us your salvation. Blessed be your name, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
wrote to the church and said to the Corinthians for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you this do in remembrance of me Father we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus we thank you for the body of our Lord which took upon himself stripes and that with his stripes we are healed. We receive this bread, Father, and we receive healing from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. In Jesus' name, let's receive the bread. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Father, we thank you for this cup, this juice that represents the blood of Jesus. 
We thank you, Father, that we are made righteous by the precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that because we are born again, all things are made new. We thank you, Father. We've been restored into divine righteousness in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Let's receive the cup. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's make our confession one more time. Ready? This is our year of jubilee. We expect manifestations of the Holy Ghost and power. We believe for financial miracles and miracles of healing. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, folks. Have a great day and a great Thanksgiving.